underlying reason for this disproportionate representation is rooted in the history of the United States and perpetuated by current practices with um, with the national criminal legal system. So, mm-hmm. so it's not that um, black men or black women are committing crimes at higher rates than their white counterparts. It's because of the system of racism mm-hmm. um, in this country. Thank you for joining us. You are now tuned into Trish Chat, a series that aims to normalize vulnerability through conversation. Our episodes promote meaningful dialogue around identity, culture, and real-life stories. We are your hosts, Steph and Jess, and everything you'll hear in our episodes are based on personal experiences. Be sure to tune in every Monday to hear our latest episodes. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Trish Chat. My name is Steph. A, for the purposes of this episode, I am here with Jess. <laughs> Say hi to everybody. <laughs> We're also recording a video. So remember that you, yeah. ha- you have to say hi verbally. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just wave. Um, today we have uh, a special guest with us. Um, her name is Stephanie Batances, or as we call her, Steph B, which is why I said Steph A for the purpose of this episode is me. Steph B for the purpose of this episode is Steph B. Yep. Um, <laughs> and Just G. Jess G. Yeah. And yeah, Jess G. There we go. Um, so we really, really wanted to get on the mic with Steph. Um, Steph works in the uh criminal legal system. And um I think she truly does like one of the most important jobs in society. Um, and so I think there's a my point of view is that there's like a lot of misconceptions about the system, about the people in the system. Um, and I I wanted to get on the mic with her just to shed some light on the work that she does, um, on misconceptions like we talked about. And then um, I know that for people who are doing a lot of this like really important work, there can be burnout because, you know, Jess and I, for example, can say we've had such a rough day, like let's put that behind us and, and you know, let's enjoy the weekend. But for those who are doing these sorts of roles, you know, they're working with like people's lives, people's futures. And so you can't really do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, like mental health and taking care of your mental health so that you're able to take care of others. So that's all the stuff that we'll explore Mm -hmm. Um, before we we really dive into that. I wanted to ask kind of like a fun question of, you know, Steph, what have you done this week to fill your cup? One thing I've done this week is that I've maintained a regular exercise schedule in the morning. Um, I am someone who's very, I consider myself very active and I do enjoy um, working out. Um, So now with the shelter in in place and obviously not having a gym accessible, Mm -hmm. I found ways to work out at home and I found different videos that I enjoy working out to. And it's just been nice. Um, to get up in the morning, first thing in the morning and work out for at least 30 minutes mm-hmm. um, and just sweat. Like it's, I, for me, it's so important to sweat. I feel like if I don't sweat, it's not a good workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I, and I just feel like it allows me to relieve, release a lot of the stress that I have and, and allows me to jump into the day um, as smoothly as possible. So 
yeah. working out consistently um, has definitely helped me this past week. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like routine has definitely been the savior in all of this. Um, yeah. So I, 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 same, same here. That's what you've done. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a whole week of, <clears throat> excuse me, of um, we did our, our ab challenge. <clears throat> oh, which yeah. Stuff followed followed through. Um, and yeah, I just, I started that Nike training app that you've been raving about. Yeah. And it's really helped me, at least with like get, getting my day started. Because at one point I was like, what day is it? I don't even know what day it is. And now mm-hmm. I'm able to be like, mm-hmm. okay, today's Wednesday's workout. Um, yeah. 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 I, I So I really like the, the Nike training app because this is not sponsored by Nike, by the way. But I really like the Nike training app because of the fact that um, like a good chunk of the workouts are free. All of them are free right now, but a good chunk in outside of COVID, a good chunk of the workouts are free, which is the version that I use the free version and they have workouts all time spans. So if I'm really, really busy or I'm just not feeling it and, but I want to push myself because I know that I really need that. Mm -hmm. I can do a 15 minute workout and like stuff said that just releases tension and stress and it's, it's helpful. And you don't have to go to a gym. So if you don't have access to a gym, if you don't have the the monetary, like the financial means to be part of a gym, or if you don't have like the equipment, you can't buy the equipment, you can do workouts with just body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that there's people out there that like really value movement, yeah. um, but they don't have like the means to buy equipment or be part of a gym. So I think this is um, a good way to maintain that 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 movement or that fitness routine that you have. There's tons of other apps out there. I only know about the Nike trading app, which is why yeah. I've been telling people about it. And we've also had a <clears throat> friendly competition in regards to um, not been water intake, movement, fresh air, and multivitamins. Every morning, Steph yeah. writes it out on our whiteboard. <clears throat> I, I've been winning mostly. Um, she has not. <laughs> and it just... It it's put- a matter of who gets to it. She, she took it as like, who gets to it first? I take it as complete it in the day i'm competitive right but it's nice because it reminds you water intake is so important right now so it's like making sure we're having 64 ounces at least of water um movement making sure we're getting fresh air even if it's like 10 minutes um and then making sure we're taking our our multivitamins and our supplements during this time and so that's been really i think it's been a full week of us doing that so thanks for starting that such a good idea yeah it's awesome it's good it's it's a nice it's a nice um, challenge and it's good to drinking water can be really boring. That's such a yes. privileged thing to say, but I'm just going to say drinking water can be really boring because you're just like, you're just chugging, 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 chugging. And after a while you just, I feel like stress just takes over and you, you avoid drinking the water. So when you're seeing that the person that you live with is like drinking the water, it motivates you. And when you have the yeah. little check boxes to check, you're just like, let me finish this. so I can check that box. Yeah. Um, so it's nice. Yeah, it's been it's good. Nice. <clears throat> um, I would say the one thing that I've done this week um, to fill my cup is I um, have been, obviously a lot of us have been working from home for those of us who can. And I was going from being at our, our at, like our table and working to just going right over to um, either walk our dog or start dinner. And there was no transition. And it felt very stressful for me because it felt like the day was just one long blob. Yeah. Um, so I started taking 30 minutes 
after I close my laptop to do whatever I want. So if I want to watch a show, I'll do that. If I want to sit in silence, I'll do that. If I want to listen to music, I'll do that. But it's 30 minutes so that I can have a transition. I plan to continue doing that even after we go back to commuting because I think that's, yeah. I recognize how important that <clears throat> is to have a transition period and allow your your brain to just transition to, okay, we're done. We're done with the work aspect. And our primary focus now is going to be um, the things at home, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, In regards to transitions, so the other day um, I was on my team meeting and there was something interesting that my supervisor said that I really appreciated. She says that at the end of her day, she like puts her stuff on. So she'll put on her jacket um, or her bag or whatever. And she walks outside of her door and then comes back in. Oh, oh yeah. sort of that has been like a way for her to reset. And I thought that that was so interesting and like so smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't take, you know, I, I mean, from what she described, it doesn't take too much effort on her end. I mean, it could be maybe if you wanted to go all the way down. I mean, I live in a building, mm-hmm. so maybe if I wanted to go all the way downstairs, come back up, sort of have that like routine in place. But I thought that that was really interesting and I appreciated her sharing that. I haven't tried it yet. Yeah. Um, I am being lazy about it, I guess. So, maybe, yeah. but maybe I should. Yeah, no, that's a or good other tip. other ways, like what Steph said, like maybe 30 minutes of, just sitting down and just like sort of like shutting out the day or like mm-hmm. sort of like transitioning now into your personal life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you've been feeling better since you've done that. Yeah. Because otherwise it just, it, it, it feels like the day is a whole like list yeah. of like, this is what I need to do next. And this is yeah. what I need to do next. And then 10 PM hits and you're like, I'm exhausted and <laughs> there hasn't been a break. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, I considered my break sleeping and I'm like, I, the break is not sleeping. Like there needs to be a break where, you know, you can engage your mind in a different way. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's jump in and talk. Yes. Um, so Steph, I would love it if you could tell, um, not us, cause we know you. How do, how do we know Steph? <laughs> uh, we know Steph from high school. I should have mentioned <clears throat> yeah. that. Steph mm-hmm. was in our, one of our previous episodes on daddy issues along with, um, our other friend Rose. So please check that episode out if you want to know more about Steph. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know Steph from high school. I yes. can't remember how I met you or when I met you in high school. We met through a mutual friend, to be honest. Yeah. 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 And, and Steph, um, Steph was um, Steph's maid of honor. Yeah. Um, yes. So we, we, go, we go back. Um, so it's super... Way back. So you should say... Steph B with Steph A's made of honor because people are like, who's who, who's what? Yes, yes, true, right. We're like talking in the video and then also doing the podcast. So, um, but yeah, we're super, we're super blessed to have the friendship we have. And um, I'm just super happy to have you back on and to dive into this very important episode. Um, I always tell you, but if if you forgot, like I think what you do is so important and I really admire the work you've done and what you continue to do. Um, I'm constantly worried about you and like the work just because I want to make sure you're good because you t- do take on a lot with your clients and that it's emotional. It's very heavy and like you yeah. want the best for everyone and like you're going up against a system, which I'm sure you'll talk about. Um, so thank you for taking the time to talk about that and shed some light on it. I hope that our listeners really learn a little bit more about um, the system here and mm-hmm. excited to 
hear hear about you. So Steph, if you want to take yeah. it away. So Steph, if you could um, tell us about yourself, like, you know, tell us about you personally, you know, this, essentially the story of what led you to the role that you're in now. We purposely haven't shared Steph's role because we're going to get to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> or we'll let Steph, you know, get to it or share. Yes. Yeah. I, I will definitely get there. Um, so a little bit about me, not to make it too long, but um, when I, I was born in the Dominican Republic. And when we first, when my family and I first moved here, we moved in to um, a neighborhood in South Bronx, in the South Bronx. And we were living there with my great aunt. Um, we were living in a one bedroom apartment and it was like my mom, my dad, my brother, myself. So it's four of us, my aunt, her daughter. So it was so many of us in a one bedroom apartment. We lived in a very, um, in a very, like during that time, I mean, we moved in the early nineties. So during that time, there was just like, there was a lot of like crimes in a lot of the communities and a lot of drugs. And I remember we would look out, I would look out of the window and like, there was always something happening or mm-hmm. I remember seeing like syringes on the street, like in our building. So like, mm-hmm. it was a very low income area. Um, we moved out of there, thankfully a couple months later and we settled in the, Upper West Side, but when I say Upper West Side, it's not like the very nice Upper West Side area that a mm-hmm. lot of people think of. Mm-hmm. Like, I grew up in um, on Amsterdam Avenue on 107, where primarily the community is made up of um, Black and Latinx people, and still a very low income area. I attended um, public school all my life. And all the schools that I attended were primarily made up of black and brown children. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit about me and like sort of where I grew up, uh, sort of where I grew up in the neighborhood. I mean, I always we grew up surrounded by drugs um, being sold in our communities. Um, so it wasn't something unthinkable. Like I grew up with when I, I when I went into middle school, I remember I had peers who were gang involved already at a very early age. Um, some of the I remember some of the students were come in and they were like beat up because they had just had a fight that morning mm. or they got jumped. So I grew up dealing with a lot of the things that I now see in some of my clients that I premier, that I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also and to tie to also go back to my childhood, I remember my parents were always always very secretive of things that had happened in the past with my dad. And then I later came to know that my dad had been um, had been incarcerated and had gone to jail for quite some time before my mom, my brother and I moved to um, the United States because my father was here before us. Mm-hmm. Um so they were always very secretive about this thing where my dad was incarcerated and my dad for so long, like my dad couldn't do a lot of the things that other people could do, like travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always wondered, like, why were my brother, my mom and I always allowed to travel back and forth to the, the Dominican Republic, but my dad couldn't. And it was because he like really just couldn't, mm-hmm. um, not because he was here illegally, but because he was afraid that 
there was a like a law back in the days that if I mean, and it's still true today, but if you are a convicted um, felon and you don't, um, you're not a U.S. citizen, you risk the, the you risk deportation. Mm-hmm. So I think my father was always very worried about whether, like, if him coming back into the country, that was jeopardized. Like, him yeah. jeopardizing, like, going to the Dominican Republic, he could jeopardize his uh, um, immigration status here in the U.S. So anyway, so that was always something that I saw in our home. And I don't remember my dad ever getting support from anyone. Like, um, I don't think that he had when he was involved in the criminal legal system or justice involved he wasn't there wasn't any support that he got or no one helped him navigate Mm -hmm. um and i see that fortunately for some of our clients like people are there to help them navigate sort of like how to deal with certain things anyway so fast forward um to like high school i was always interested in psychology and more i was always interested in the law i don't know why um, but I've always been interested in psychology and law. Um, and after I graduated from college, I got my master, I mean, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology, undergrad and minor in, um, forensic science. And then I always knew that I wanted to do forensic psychology. I had taken a few courses while I was in, um, few direct classes that le- that were like criminology yeah. or psych and law or mm-hmm. like just various different things. And I knew that I wanted to do um, forensic psychology. So after a few years out of, out of school, I decided to go back to get my master's in forensic psychology. I ended up going to John Jay. And while I was at John Jay, I came across this awesome fellowship um, that was in collaboration with John Jay College and the Pinkerton Foundation. And the purpose of this fellowship was to place people at organizations that were committed to youth justice. Mm-hmm. And that is how I came to the organization that I am now working for. So I interned for them for 14 months. And sort of while I was there, first of all, I didn't even know that the role that I was in or that people doing the work that I'm doing now even existed. I didn't yeah. know that you can have an attorney, but also this attorney could work in collaboration with a social worker um, and then um, connect you with services or try to support you as much as possible through the um period that you're going through the court through the court system Mm -hmm. but also like in your life like try to connect you to services that you may need but also like to try to get you a fair disposition hopefully yeah um so anyway so that's how i sort of oh well yeah that i sort of ended up at the place where i am now so it was through a fellowship um i honestly didn't think i was gonna get a full-time position at the job where I'm at now at the organization because they primarily hire in people um, in my role. They primarily hire people with social work degrees. Mm -hmm. But considering that I was there for 14 months and, um, and that I'm in a related and I was in a related field or obtained my degree in a related field, forensic psychology, they found me to be a fit Um, And I was, they sort of created, um, they sort of created a position for me, but it's essentially doing the role of a social worker on a case. So 
all that to say, I think that what has led me where I am now is definitely like the things that I saw in my community growing up, mm-hmm. um, my father's previous um, involvement with the criminal legal system and sort of how um, invasive the system can be, but also how unforgiving yeah. the system can be, right? Like you can serve your time or you can sort of redeem yourself, pay for your mistakes or like whatever, but they, no one forgets what you did yeah. because it always comes up one way or another. And you are not allowed to do certain things that people that are not just as involved mm-hmm. or have been previously just as involved can do. Um, and sort of like, and, and, you know, the exposure exposure that I got through my internship was also like another reason why I felt like this was the place where I needed to be. I just felt super connected and super passionate and it just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah and I'm so like drawn into the story and I know a lot of it, but like, I'm just like, wow. I know a lot of it, but I learned little <clears throat> things just Absolutely. now too that I, I didn't, I didn't know before, but also I would say that I think already you've shed light for, um, people listening in that, you know, I didn't. I also didn't know that if someone was in the system that they could have an attorney and um, uh, like a social worker. I thought Mm -hmm. that you got an attorney and that was it. And the quality of your attorney determined Mm -hmm. like your future in a way. That's what I thought. That was my impression. Yeah. So that is still the case. Not everyone. So I work for a public defender office. So I work for a somewhat large organization that has different departments. So as a public, if you get someone from my office, um, and depending if the attorney deems it um, necessary, they'll refer you to a social worker Mm -hmm. within the specified unit. So gotcha. if you're an adult, you'll get someone in the adult um, mm. unit. If you're an adolescent, which is where I work, um, you get a social worker as well. However, there are people that are represented by what they call 18Bs, which are still public attorneys. But these are attorneys that are someone they work for themselves. They don't necessarily work for an organization. Mm-hmm. And so with them, it's a little bit tricky because they don't have the connections to a larger organization where they can connect you to other different I departments see. or to other different services. So sometimes, I mean, they can connect you to agencies and other organizations that do very similar work, that do case management or that can support you in that way. Mm-hmm. But so not everyone that comes through the system and if uh, and if they're assigned a public attorney will um, be have a social worker or um, other resources available to them. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Before we go to the next yeah. question, um, I'm curious, Steph. When did you realize the link between what you wanted, what you're doing now, and what you were pursuing to do? Link back to like the experiences that you just mentioned, like even just with your father. Like, did that, mm-hmm. was that always a link for you as you were going through the, the process? Or is it something that you've now recently reflected back on and been like, oh, okay, this makes sense. This is why I'm so like passionate along with the other reasons I'm passionate. Yeah. So like I said before, I didn't even know that this position or that 
social workers. Again, I'm not a social worker, um, but I, I never knew that there were social workers that worked within the criminal legal system and that were there to support um, people that are go are court involved. You know, when you hear about social workers, you think about ACS, yeah. so the Administrative for Children's Services, and you think about people that are coming into your homes and like, mm -hmm. you know, removing children from their parents' care. Like that's sort of the idea that I had about first my misconception of social workers. Social mm -hmm. workers can be anywhere and everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't even know that this position existed. Um, it has through through my internship and through what I was doing, that's how I learned. And I came to realize how all the different things that I've done in my life have sort of um, led to this point mm -hmm. in some sort of way. Um, I've always been very super interested in working with um, children, adolescents. Um, I just feel like there's so much, there's so much room for growth there. Um, and so much that can be passed on, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've worked with children in different capacities, whether at a school, whether tutoring, you know, um, I was also a teacher mm -hmm. in South Korea for a year. Um, and then, but then also my passion, I've always had a passion for law and psychology. Like, and for so long, I wanted to go into the FBI. Mm -hmm. and, I remember that. You know, I think all these, all these shows that you see on TV, like, led me to believe that there are forensic psychologists at the FBI. That is not a job that exists there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then just coming to the organization where I am now, I just like, it all sort of clicked and started to make sense as to like what I really wanted to do. And I just feel so aligned with the organization and like what I'm doing. And it just, it feels good to go to a job where you are yourself and mm -hmm. I can talk about the things that affect me the most, um, especially as a woman of color, yeah. um, growing up in a in community in a community of people of color. Mm -hmm. So, for me, like all these things have been. I mean, it's been so important, and sorry, um, it's been so important as to where I am now, yeah, and why I've been there. But I mean, this is not something that I knew all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, so many links back to just <clears throat> your life. Yeah. Like it, it all just makes mm -hmm, sense. Yeah. And <clears throat> mm -hmm. even just knowing you from like your teenage years to now, like I see all the links and I'm like, holy crap, that's amazing. Like that that you've come amazing. to this point mm -hmm. where, you know, we were talking about in our, in our last episode about how like growing up in our communities and being first gen, like there was so much that we didn't have access to specifically around careers and what existed and even if we knew they existed we didn't have people to go to to like help with those misconceptions or really just help us mm -hmm. understand what is possible and I think it's just beautiful that you found something that aligns so well with like your value yeah. system and who you are and like how you want to help and so my hope is that everyone yes. is able to find that um yeah. so it's just such mm -hmm. a good segue Absolutely. in this episode to, yeah. to see that 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 happened I also want to give Steph a shout out because um, Steph and I worked for the same um, organization, the same um, That's network right. of charter schools That's for, right. for some time. Um, and I know that once you graduate college and like you're working in a role for a certain amount of time, you've built your rapport, you're like moving up and you're, you're making like money. It can be really mm -hmm. easy to just stay on that track of like, hey, 
I have these hours that I work. I have this job that I know I'm growing in it. And even if it's, um, even if you enjoy it, but it's not what like the, the ultimate goal of what you want to do. I think for those of us who are first gen and who have that pressure from, from our parents, from our families of like, but you have a job, you finished school, you got what you needed to do. Yeah. Um, I think it can put us in a path where it's like a very linear path of like, just, just go down that path because you'll be taken care of. Um, so I want to mm-hmm. like give a shout out to Steph for being vulnerable and, um, breaking from that path and, and yeah. saying like, no, I want to go back to school because I want to, yeah. I want to follow my passion and saying like, I'm yeah. going to walk away from this and I'm going to, I'm going to take that, that risk. And I'm going to do what I, what I told myself that I was going to do. Word. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah, it was, it, it was very hard. I mean, I, when I left the organization that Steph A and I worked for, I was earning very good money mm-hmm. and I was very comfortable, but I was also not entirely happy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very stressful position, mm-hmm. but I was, I was in a very stressful position and it like, I mean, we would go on vacations and I was like still working, working. like yeah. I just, and people, and you know, and like no one really respected it's like no one really respected my time off. Like mm-hmm. it was and also like, I knew that I always wanted to go back to school and it was always something that I told myself that I wanted to do. I always knew that I wanted to get my master's in forensic psychology and it did take me six years, but I did it. I was one of the oldest people. I remember always feeling so old in comparison to a lot of my peers in the program because a lot of them had just had gone straight from undergrad to, mm-hmm. um, grad school and that you know that's great for them that was in my path and I absolutely love and I appreciate the you know the six years that I took off because I got to do really great things that I think have molded me into the person that I am today um so yeah it is very difficult but I definitely think that it was worth it for Um, sure yeah looking back yeah yeah um, so Steph, I think you, you've, you've touched upon this in like many different ways. Um, yeah. but just to put it a little bit more concretely for people, like tell us about exactly what it is that you do and what it entails. Yeah. So I work, um, again, I work for a public defender office. I work in the adolescent social work team. Again, I'm not a social worker, um, but I, that is the team that I am under, Um, and generally what happens is anyone that is 21 and under, Mm -hmm. um, is assigned, um, to our team. Now, every youth that comes in doesn't necessarily have to get assigned a social worker on their team, on their defense team. However, every youth that comes in and has a, is, is, um, being charged with a felony Mm. automatically gets Mm. a social worker. Okay. Um, So generally what happens is the attorney makes a request for a social worker on the case. They get a little bit of basic information and put in in the request, like what they're specifically looking for. Most of the times they're like looking for the social worker to connect the youth with a program, like an alternative to incarceration program. And the purpose of these programs is as it's, as, as the name says, it's an alternative to incarceration. So the point is that, Hopefully this will be the alternate thing that this youth can do instead mm-hmm. of going to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so I 
if I am referred a client, I usually try to assess what their needs are. Um, so generally it's like education, um, you know, connecting them to maybe mental health services, yep. maybe connecting them to a, a program that can help them find employment. Um, but generally a lot of it is connecting them to a program of some sort or, you know, figuring out education. A lot of the clients that we see, unfortunately, the education system has failed them, mm -hmm. which is by no means or a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I try to figure school out for, I try to help with them, you know, and depending on what they tell me, I try to work with them to figure out school, whether it is, you know, that they want a school transfer or whether it is that, you know, the school that they're working at, um, which may be a traditional public school, traditional public school system, maybe they want to explore a transfer school. Transfer mm -hmm. schools, which is something that I didn't know about growing up, but transfer schools are places where you can go and you, they work on a trimester basis and you can earn your credits a little bit quicker. And sometimes you can earn more than the 11 credits that are required for the year. Gotcha. So, so essentially, I am working with this young person to try to meet their needs, but also so that we can get some sort of report to provide the court. Like, this is what this young person is doing. This is how they're positively engaging in their community. And unfortunately, not all the time does a person, does a youth want your help. Yeah. Not all the time do they know what they want or mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, I am still part of the system one way or another. Yeah. I am still a part of the court. So yeah. I'm not, I don't come into their life at a very great point. Yeah. I don't come into, I'm not like, you know, just someone that they seek. They're not, often they're not seeking me. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes it's very hard for them to open up. I try, you know, we try not to be as invasive. The process is already invasive enough. I try to get as much information as necessary um, usually like on misdemeanor cases where we know that it'll be quickly resolved. I try not to like pry too much. Like I'm, I'm not trying to get as much, I don't need, there's a lot of things that I don't need to know. Mm -hmm. And I try to respect that. Um, because again, like the, like the, this process takes so much out of you. So besides from like advocating for them in the courtroom, um, I also advocate for them, like, for educational need purposes and often we I'm also writing court reports mm -hmm. um, and these are basically lengthy reports that we generally write to try to get things to work out the best way that we want them to so generally generally I'll write a court report asking for the court to give this young person an alternative to incarceration program because at the moment the prosecutor on the case is asking for jail time. But sometimes we have to write these reports to let them know, like, here are the reasons why jail would not be the appropriate fit for this person. Yeah. Or sometimes if the person is getting a lengthy jail time and you know that no matter what, this person is going to get a lengthy jail time, you try to reduce it to something that's a little bit less or yeah. reasonable. Um. So that's sort of what I'm doing. I'm also communicating often with the person. I am um, communicating with their families because, you know, that I familial support is so important while you're going through the system. I mean, these are the people that they see. Their family are the people, hopefully, if they are able, if they live with their families, um, 
these are the people that can provide the best support and mm -hmm. you want to show that too i think the core judges like to know that families are present and involved yeah. because it just means like another person that's supporting this mm -hmm. young person so also trying to get the family involved sometimes it's really hard um especially when the youth has already been so system involved like some families give up hope some families yeah just are so tired of it because, you know, they're either A, having to come to court, so that means they can't go to work, they're not getting paid. So just so mm -hmm. many things that are happening. So once, you know, one person being justice, in, like if my if someone's child is court involved, then that affects the entire family because now people are having to take time off, like are not sleeping probably. I mean, there, there are times when like if the youth gets arrested, you know, at 9 p.m., they might not be seeing a judge till one in the morning mm -hmm. and like, or maybe later. And so the families are called to be there at that time. And then they're called to come in the next day and, yeah. you know, go through the process again. So it's just, it's just a lot on not only the person, um, but also the families um, that are involved. So also like trying to get the family support and like communicating with them Um I also do visit my clients when they are incarcerated. I do visit them at the jails. Primarily, I go to Rikers to visit my family, to visit my uh, clients. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I think that's sort of what that it sort of entails. Yeah. What I do in my responsibilities. That's um, crazy. Steph, do you think that, um, I imagine that, um, and I'm speaking based on like the, the makeup of like Rikers Island, which is mostly people of color, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Correct. Do, does, do you find that it makes a difference or that um, the clients that you work with are a little bit more open to talking to you because you are a person of color and they're likely um, when they're looking at people in the system, like in the system in terms of like judges, lawyers, et cetera, they're likely mainly white. Um, does it, do you think it makes a difference that you're a person of color to them? I definitely, I definitely do think, I do think it makes a difference. Um, and it's very interesting that you asked me that question because I did a little bit of, this is something that was included as part of my thesis, uh, my mm -hmm. graduate thesis, where that was one of the questions that I asked. Um, and I, I didn't, for my thesis, I didn't, um, I didn't interview clients or the young people. I interviewed service providers, so people that are sort of in my role yeah. at different organizations. And what a lot of the people of color that I interviewed, they said that they, and I think for me is something that I think it's true for myself too. Like it's just easier for me, I think it's easier for me to connect, mm -hmm. um, with my clients primarily because I mean, I'm thinking now, like all of my clients are people of color since yeah. I've been there. Um, I've had two clients and for the past year, I've had two clients that are white. Um, but everyone that I see and everyone that I have gone to visit at Rikers, are either black or brown. Um, oh. And I, I, it just, it helps. I mean, I, sometimes I understand the, the lingo, like, especially like with some of my clients that are Dominican, um, 
like some like a lot of them speak in colloquial ways that are yeah. that primarily people from the Dominican Republic that's how they speak yeah and so I for me it's easier to understand those clients opposed yeah. to like I've had attorneys on cases and if they speak Spanish they're like do you understand what this client is saying and I'm like yeah mm-hmm. like I know exactly what he or, he or she is saying yeah um so I do think that it helps. I mean, I I take a lot of pride in that. I take pride in that, that I um I am a person of color when they're primarily working with an attorney that's often white or mm. like involved, you know, seeing a judge who's white. Like I do, I do take a lot of pride in that. And um I I do think it's it's easier. Um I do. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they entirely feel, but I know that I can connect um, in ways that I know my white colleagues can't. And, you know, that's something that I found through some of the research that I conducted and in previous research where like having having a common knowledge of like the culture, like it helps. Mm -hmm. It definitely helps in building rapport. so, yes, yeah. so I would say that it does help that I am a woman of color. But again, like I'm also working with a lot of black boys. Like, first of all, I'm not a, I'm not a boy. I'm not I, I'm not an adolescent boy. I don't know what it feels like mm-hmm. to walk this earth being a black boy. So yeah. that is, you know, I also have to admit that that's also a reality mm-hmm. that I need to let them tell me about. And, yeah. you know. Um, listen to what they have to say because I don't know what that feels like. Yeah. I've also never been to jail. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I can only imagine what it feels like to be in there, but I don't know, you mm-hmm. know, like, yeah. I don't know what it feels for me to come in. You know, it's hard. Like when I go visit my clients, like I am here, like trying to have a vulnerable moment with them, but yet they have to go back after they finish my, our visit they're going back into this place where they have to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to like not be vulnerable because then people can take advantage of them. So I, I mean, at the moment I'm going to therapy. So thinking about like, you know, I have an hour with my therapist where I'm vulnerable, but I have, I don't have to go anywhere and like put on this facade or put on this front. And I think that, um, that also makes it really complex. Like just, I'm not in their shoes and a lot of the things that they experience are not things that I have ever experienced. However, I do think that it makes it um, easier because I am in a very similar culture as in comparison to them. Yeah. And I, I think can relate in those ways. Yeah. yeah. It's like taking like layers off, right? Like even just think, thinking about the language piece, how, they're dealing with something so serious, like their life, like their life is in the hands of the system and they can't even communicate what they need to say or their story. And so even having you there from like um, a Spanish speaking side, making them comfortable and mm-hmm. in, in maybe their, their primary language is just like, you're bridging the gap into something like, it's so huge, you know? Um, so I, you know, again, I'm not in their shoes, but I can imagine if I were in their shoes and I were in a system where they weren't speaking English and then I found someone who could understand me, how relieving that could be Mm -hmm. 
um, because it's something so serious like my life. Yeah. So. Right. 100%. Yeah. And I know it also helps with like families. Like I, especially with my families that only speak Spanish, you know, with like the, not my families, but like the client's family that only speak Spanish. Like it helps so much. Mm -hmm. And like for me to be on the case and I develop really close relationships. I mean, to be honest, sometimes like I'm the only person that they communicate with because unfortunately they can't communicate with the attorney. And so, um, so it does help. It does help. And, 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 you know, going through the system is already hard enough. Like the language used in the legal system is I'm not an attorney. I don't know what several, I don't know things like, Mm -hmm trying to speak attorney talk is hard, but yeah. I can't even imagine what it's like to on top of that, have this added layer of, of not knowing the language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's not like it's asking for directions or something simple. It's like your fate, um, your life, mm-hmm. um, is in the hands of, this attorney or this judge. And if you can't communicate with them and ask them questions or ask, what can I do? Or what is it? What, what do you think in your professional opinion? Like, mm-hmm. what do you think is going to happen in terms of like mm-hmm. percentages and, and, and ratios? Like what is, what is the, what are the chances that, you know, X is going to happen or Y is going to happen? I think yeah. the, having that information puts people at ease. And if you don't know how to ask that, you know, in the language of the attorney, you're just really, you're in the dark. Yeah. Um, right. With your child in the system right. or with your nephew in the system or with your grandchild in the system, et cetera. Yeah. 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 Um, this is, this is like a very interesting question that um, Jess and I were very curious about because oftentimes like in our roles, we talk about like, how do you measure success? And, you know, it's like a lot of arbitrary stuff, but you are, your 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 people's lives. You know their futures um, are sort of like at mm-hmm. stake. So how is how is success measured for your role? I mean, there is really no measure of success. To be honest, the ultimate goal is to the ultimate goal for us is that a client doesn't go to jail. Mm-hmm. You know, to have that is we consider it successful, you know, mm-hmm. to have a client not go to jail or for their um, charges to be dropped. Mm-hmm. Like that's huge. That's like top yeah. of the top. Like, yeah. unfortunately that doesn't always happen. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I'll start from the very, like from the bottom, bottom of like how I also measure success. So success for me is like building rapport with a client, getting a client to trust me. Yeah. Um, that is big. I mean, I currently have a client who I met 14 months ago. When I first met him, he wanted nothing to do with me. Like I would come to court and I would talk to his mom, but also like there was a little bit of friction. His mom had already, her child had already been so system involved that she was just tired of talking to people, you know? Mm -hmm. So like even that to where I'm at now, where this client wants to talk to me, like texts me like yeah. ask me how I'm doing like that is big that's huge yeah um because you want you want the person that you're working with to trust you I mean it's hard to get anything really done if someone doesn't want to talk to you or someone doesn't trust you or someone questions the things that you're doing or someone questions your 
um your alliance like who you know like yeah do, like are they questioning who i work for like yeah do they think that i'm gonna go into like and tell them you know like because it's so hard right like this is so complicated sometimes you feel like is this attorney really working for me or are they really working for the core yeah do they want yeah. me to loyalty um, loyalty is tested yeah wow so um so that for me like that's still success like having building rapport with a client mm-hmm. um other things could be like the client has to go to jail for a year but then the client won't come out with a felony record um so it's just like I, it, it all depends on the case and it all depends on the client i would say i think it's very um unique to who you're working for and the nature of the case um i was I'm no longer working with this client, but at at one point I had a client who was in on attempted murder charges. The client, he's still going through the case and he's he's out on an attempted murder case. But the goal for us was to preserve his immigration status. So whatever that meant, if he had to go to jail for a few years, I mean, like Mm -hmm. ultimately we would not want him to go to jail, but we also don't want him to be deported back to a country where things are so unstable also his family lives here Mm -hmm. he doesn't really have anyone back in his country of origin Mm -hmm. and so like it's all very client dependent and it all depends on like really the nature of the case like if someone is being charged with something um which would they would consider an extreme crime like uh you know a attempted murder case a robbery in the first degree Mm -hmm. like those that's hard. Like one of my clients that I was working with for a long time, he was charged with two attempted um, with two robbery cases in the first degree. He's 17 years old. Um, what well, the time he was 17 years old. And the best that we could do for him was give him a one and a third sentence, which means that he could spend, I think it's like 16 or 18 months max. I mean, minimum. Mm-hmm. And then up until four four years, but at the end of it, he comes out with a clean record because mm. he was seventeen years old. So there's what they call youthful offender treatment, which are afforded to people who've committed a crime or who have been charged. Because not everyone that is charged with a crime has committed a crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, but he, that's what you know. So youth, going back to youthful offender treatment, you get that if you're 18 and under, but you only get it once. So if you got youthful offender treatment when you were 16 and now you're 17 and something else happened, mm. you no longer have youthful offender treatment. Wow. So this client, in order for us to basically resolve both of his cases, both both of his felony cases, we had to take what they called a global disposition and. So we did, we resolved his two cases in one. So now this client is upstate, um, serving his, serving time. Um, and, you know, and ultimately we wanted to get him into, we were trying to get him out into a program that didn't happen. And obviously that hurt. I mean, he also has so many things going on, but now I, but now it's, it's a little bit more assuring that he is going to hopefully come out of this with a clean what they call a clean record yeah um and can he has a clean slate where he can still apply for a job without disclosing that he um was convicted of a felony um has a felony record because he doesn't now he won't yeah Um, he can apply to colleges if he wants to so i guess it's all very 
individualized yeah. and it all depends on a lot of circumstances. Um, but that's sort of like the little wins also mean a lot. And so in this particular case with that client that I was mentioning, like, yeah, he's serving time and no, we didn't get him out, but he now has youthful offender treatment. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like it's, it's completely based on what comes across your, like, um, in terms of like their, the client profile and, um, the charges that they're up against and, you know, yeah. their profile of like what they want, what they, what they, mm-hmm. in their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. mentioned something yeah. that I think segues into the next piece that we wanted to talk about. So you said not everyone who is convicted of a felony or of a crime has committed that, that crime. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about people in the system. And I think that it's very easy for people to have those misconceptions because, uh, because of the media, mm-hmm. think about shows like cops where it was mm-hmm. predominantly white cops arresting black men. Mm-hmm. And it creates this idea mm-hmm. in our minds that like black people and black men are inherently violent, are inherently more prone to crime, which is not true. Um, And so I think that a lot of times when people see um, folks who are in the system, they think like you were charged for a robbery, so you deserve to be there. You did something wrong, Mm -hmm. so you deserve to be there. And even for people who did, right? Let's say they did commit a robbery. People still think that that was entirely that individual Mm -hmm. and that there isn't like a whole structural um, system of poverty and lack of resources that contributes to people Mm -hmm. having to steal because they don't have access to things that, you know, some of us do. So I would love to hear from you. um, What are misconceptions of the, of the criminal legal system and and of the people in the system that you would love to address for our listeners. So I I want to start off giving a few stats that I think are so important. Mm-hmm. So um, last year, the actually not last year, May 2018, the Vera Institute of Justice came out with a very good report that I really appreciate and really resonated with me in many ways, because I think that it like, it spoke to a lot of things that I see um, or that we see in the criminal legal system. Um, So just if anyone wants to read it, uh, the name of the study is called An Unjust Burden, the the Disparate Treatment of Black Americans in the Criminal Justice System. Um, And in that study, there were so many good stats that were given and just like it was such a good report that was done and I think it highlighted so many things that are important but just to give some of the stats which I this is they weren't the first ones to um show it I mean I think it's something that is generally like they're generally provided but one in every three black men born today can um will be incarcerated in their lifetime compared to one in six latinx men and one in 17 white men Wow. Um, For black women. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, think about like three of your black friends, three of your black male friends. One of them will probably go, will be incarcerated, which is a lot. Wow. And very heavy. Um, So sim- the black women are similarly impacted. We have one in 18 black women born in 20 in 2001 
who will likely be incarcerated at some time in their life in comparison to one in 111 white women. Oof, that's a Again, big that difference. Was one in 18 black women. Yeah, huge difference. Um, and the underlying reason for this disproportionate representation is rooted in the history of the United States and perpetuated by current practices with um, with the National Criminal Legal System. So, mm-hmm. so it's not that um, black men or black women are committing crimes at higher rates than their white counterparts. It's because of the system of racism mm-hmm. um, in this country. Um, and other like misconceptions that I've heard a lot um and it's in research you know but something that i really appreciated the um that the report highlighted is that people often talk about this notion of or this idea of black and black um intraracial violence is greater than intraracial violence for other groups and that's just not true mm-hmm. um intra- there's a they in the report they say that um, violence occurs between victims and offenders of the same race, regardless of race. Yeah. So again, so it's not just black on black crime is higher. Mm-hmm. It's just that that's what they're showing. Yeah. So, and it, and this is perpetuated by the FBI's uh, uniform crime report, which is considered the official measure of national crime reports because they emphasize street crime to the exclude the exclusion of organized and white collar crime. So then this affects the figures that mm. figures that inform law enforcement strategies and prior and prioritizes tend to reflect the crimes committed by low income and unemployed Americans who in part because of the structural inequalities and are disproportionately black. Yeah. So again, so we're using data that's completely shift and then we continue to show that in research. Yeah. Um, and then that's how this myth, this misconception that there's more black on black crime when that's not necessarily true. Yeah. People commit people commit crimes at equal rates. Mm. Yeah. At least for intra-racial crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so those were some of the things that I sort of wanted to highlight. I mean, and also like going back to like some of the basics too, like this idea that, oh, if you were arrested, you must have done something. Mm-hmm. Like, what if you didn't do anything? Sometimes yeah. you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. maybe because you either, A, they look into your background and see that maybe you have maybe some sort of involvement that you are considered to be involved in somehow in the alleged crime. Um, It's also something important to know, but like 90% of the people at Rikers have never been committed of, have never um, been convicted of a crime. So only 10% of the population at Rikers are actually there because they committed a crime. And even if they are there because they committed a crime, they're, they're low level offenses because and they're serving up to a year sentence, mm. most of them. So these are not like hardcore criminals, like how they try, how the media tries to perpetrate the people that are currently at Rikers or at some of our city jails. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I think a perfect example of this, I mean, if no one, if you haven't seen the 
Khalif Browder's story, the documentary, I think it's such a good way to highlight what's going on in the system. I think they did a very good job. And Khalif Browder's story is not just the Khalif Browder story. It's not this, you know, it was, it's not this one person that, you know, this happened to. This happens often to so many people, mm-hmm. to so many of the clients that I see, right? Um, so I just, I want to emphasize the fact that not everyone that's in jail is there because they committed a crime. Sometimes, most of the time, people are in jail because, or at Rikers, primarily, and I can really only speak for Rikers or city jails, because they can't pay for their bail. Yeah. I was just going to ask about um, that. Like that, I feel like that's, you tell me, I feel like that's a big part of why people are still in the numbers are so high because those communities cannot afford to bail them out. Um, And and, and, in that story specifically, um, it was because his family couldn't pay for his bail. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is a, that that documentary I think does a good job of highlighting um, just like our criminal legal system and specifically New York specific more to New York, but it's not just really specific to New York, but to the entire nation mm-hmm. um, and what's actually happening. So, um, you know, those are the misconceptions. I've also had conversations with, with people that they're like, if if someone you know does something, then they should go to jail. But like, why? Mm-hmm. Why aren't the? Why are you not asking yourself why is this person? Um, committing a crime or doing an act that would be considered unlawful mm-hmm. like what happened to that person before what have i i mean and i true i this is not something that i've came up on my own but like i've been in several different forums and several different conversations where they say hurt people hurt people what about everyone that hurt this person right mm-hmm. they're not in jail mm-hmm. i'm assuming you know, the different systems that they, that have oppressed this individual. Yeah. No one is taking responsibility for that. So now you have this child. And I mean, those are the primary, I can only speak for the clients that I work with, but I know that this is sort of true for a lot of people um, involved in the justice system, but like so many systems have failed them. Yeah. You know, we often see that the education system has failed them. Yep. Maybe they have been part of the, the ACS has failed them in some sort yep. of way. If child, if child services was um, in that person's life, mm-hmm. um, you know, just like the various different systems that have failed this person, um, and I'm not make I'm not saying that it's it makes it okay for someone that's hurt to hurt another person. I'm not that's not what I'm saying. I'm not mm-hmm. condoning that, but I just feel like if we look at the things that have affected this person, then we can see how that has led to where they are today. Yeah. Or like right. that trajectory um that they've been led down. You know, we see like for example, the idea of gangs. Um, I'm not saying that gangs are good, mm-hmm. but gangs provide people with security. Yep. They provide people with a community. Mm-hmm. Um, they provide people with resources mm-hmm. that unfortunately they cannot get elsewhere. Or maybe no one else has intervened to yeah. provide that person or that young person with what they need. Um, so, yeah, I, I think to your point, it's 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 about getting to the source of the issues here. It's like if 
the higher beings, you know, judges, lawyers, whoever, you know, politicians want to get to the source of the issue. It's all these systems, right? It's not necessarily like the people in them. It's the systems that the people live in, whether it's racism, poverty, Mm -hmm. uh, to your point, like not having community. Like if you are growing up poor, don't have community, um, need to get these resources. Yeah. And you live in these areas where you fear your life. You're going to attach yourself to things that provide you with some sort of certainty or safety. And like, you know, it's, it's always like mind boggling to me when people don't under, don't understand that they don't understand that people do do that. And even looking, looking at the media and I'm sure we've all seen it. It's like, look at how white people are compared to in the media when they commit a crime versus black people, even the language that's used like white male, white male shoots up school. It's like mental health issue. We saw signs of this, you know, before, and it's like painting that picture of them. And then you put up a black man and it's like killer. Like it's right. just killer over like the newspaper headlines. Or they, they try to show like yeah. this person used drugs or this person like more, just more things to demean their character. Mm-hmm. I also think that I haven't been to, to jail. I, I don't know like the specific facts and stats of like what a person's day to day looks like in jail. But from my understanding, serving time in jail does not rehabilitate a person. So even if you did commit a crime Right. And, and stuff, you're talking about the systems that failed the person. If you're dealing with abandonment, feeling angry, feeling like you don't matter because you are a black man and Mm -hmm. you're always going to fit a description. Like, let's talk about the fear that a black man must feel when they go out in the street, because they're always going to fit a description no matter what. Right. Like if you're living with that constantly going through a year, two, three, four years in prison is not going to rehabilitate you where you're going to be able to deal with the stuff that originally led you to, Mm -hmm. to that crime, to that sort of behavior, because you're not, you're not, you're not delving deep. You're not being provided with the solutions. You're not able to talk about the, like your feelings. You're not being given the toolkit to address that. And no matter what, when you come out of, you know, prison, you're still going to be facing the one in three stat that you shared probably even higher for you because now you have, you know, now you're in the system. Now you have that record. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really doing anything for the person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And how do you, I mean, this will probably go into maybe one of the other questions, but how do you explain gaps in your resume? Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. like how, if, if you're going for a high paid position, if you're trying to get a job that pays you so that you can, meet your basic needs mm-hmm. like how do you get to that point mm-hmm. if someone is not willing to take a chance on you yeah. when they look at your resume or whatever the case may be and decide whether or not to give you a job if they if if they now have to are questioning you for your gaps for the mm-hmm. gaps in your resume or for like years that you've missed or like and I think that that's yeah jail is not as they try to say is, 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 um, or like what the definition is, it's not restorative at all. It doesn't, um, it doesn't provide people. It's punitive. It's a punitive measure. Um, and I don't think that they have the, they don't, and it's not Mm -hmm. that I think they don't have the resources to help someone. Um, you know, I, there are, there is a school inside of, um, inside of, I think one or two buildings at Rikers and the schools are not 
the school is not great. The kind of education that they're getting is not great. It's also hard to try to educate yourself when you constantly are fearing for your life. Yeah. Like a lot of my clients, when they go to Rikers, and I'm like, you know, I try to find ways to help them be a little bit active and think about ways that where they can be a little bit more active and sort of break up their day. And they're like, when you go to the school building, you are mixed in with people that can be in a rival gang. And mm. so that's putting yourself at risk for something mm. happening to you. So many issues happen within the school building because of that, because they everyone is mixed in. So it's like a very vulnerable place for you to be. So not even education, even if it's wow. there, it's still not something where people feel comfortable right. um, taking advantage of. Yeah. So... It's definitely not a place that it doesn't rehabilitate you and it doesn't provide you with the skills that you need to really have some sort of success um, or what is deemed as success in the outside world. Yeah. Um, I would, because you, you already started touching on this, I would love to talk about like, in your opinion, what are the challenges that people face in going back to um, daily life once they're out of the system. So you talked about like having gaps in your resume, um, having for some people having mm -hmm. that record and how, how that impacts employment, um, options. I'm sure mm -hmm. that severely decreases their, um, opportunities for jobs that they can apply to for jobs that they would even be considered for because of the way that, you know, people's biases, like, right. Some people are very biased mm -hmm. and they're like, I don't want a yeah. criminal working here. You know, like that's the way they think. Mm -hmm. Or even the yeah. support that they get yeah, from their families or friends or whatever as they come out. Like I imagine depending on what they were charged for, it can change the perspective of how people view them mm -hmm. um, in their communities. Mm -hmm. So like that's another thing. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about support being so important. So are there any other ones that you yeah. see are like challenging for, for your clients or for people that you've seen in the system? I mean, thankfully for a lot of my clients, they're still young enough that they still have family support. But thinking, you know, about some of my clients, like I, I spoke about one client who's currently facing one of my clients who's facing uh, time upstate. He's going to come out. So this client lost his mom when he was two years old. His father died while he was incarcerated. He his grandmother, who is like someone who he was close to, lives in South Carolina. When he comes out, he's doesn't really have a place where he can go. Mm. Like, mm. so housing is so essential. Like, where yeah. you know we're gonna try to figure out housing for him and hope hope that either his uncle or his godmother may be willing to take him. But that's different from like a parent sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, because they don't have that sort of responsibility yeah. that some parents feel. So housing is very unclear and not, it's it's not certain for a lot of our clients, especially mm -hmm. for people that maybe are facing longer sentences. Like, where am I going to go to? Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, for clients that have, for older clients, like maybe they've faced a longer sentence period. Maybe their spouse they no longer have, you know, their right. spouse has remarried. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, so that, so housing, um, is never certain, um, mental health, healthcare, yeah. um, 
Yeah. You know, like you go through so much while you're in there. Like, how do you sort of like unchange your mind, especially if you've been inside of a jail for so long? How do you now cope with being out and being like having to do things on your own? Because like when you're in jail, things are in a weird way structured for you. Like you're told when to get up, you're told when to eat, you know, even but even like food, you know, I, I know some clients who have been, who sometimes have wanted to stay in jail because it's consistent shelter and food. Yeah. Um, so, so it's just like different things. It's just like all your basic needs. It's like you sort of, if you don't have like family or friend support, it's trying to figure out how you're going to get that. Right. Um, and it's just meeting your basic needs, having money to feed yourself, having a roof over your head, having proper health care. Right. Yeah. Um, and then also like the mental health issues. Like if you already went in with mental health issues, like that is just exasperated while you're in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you just, you just incarcerating someone is, is, I don't think is the answer. I mean, I am not a believer that, that there should be, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that no jail should exist Mm -hmm. to be honest, because I think that there are times and it's a very low percentage of people that probably, you know, need to be in jail because like the crime that they've committed is so heinous that like, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a conversation for another day, but I'm just thinking like jail does not prepare you. And especially for a lot of the clients that we see, jail yeah. does not prepare you for what you're going to face outside. Yeah. Right. It does not support you. It does not provide any rehabilitation. Um, I mean, if you think about it, like, if I went to jail for robbing someone, what what is jail going to teach? Like, what yeah. are, what is jail doing to sort of, like, deter me from doing that again? The fact that, you know, okay, I'm going to get locked up. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that could be a big deterrent. But sometimes for someone that has been so system involved, like, that's just, like, whatever. Right. Yeah. Or sometimes they, they have to s- steal. They, they they have to do yeah. that for like their basic to feed themselves. Need. Yeah, for their basic needs. It's just that they got caught and somebody else who's doing the same thing didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for, mm-hmm. for the people listening, like we are talking about, as Steph mentioned, as a reminder, most of the people in Rikers Island are there for low level crimes. They have not been convicted mm-hmm. of a crime. And so we're not talking about mm-hmm. someone that is a serial killer. We're not talking about someone that did like yeah. a mass, a, a multiple homicide or a mass shooter. Yeah. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about like robbery. No. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Low level offense. Low level offense. Well, what I would consider low level offenses. I mean, I'm not talking about extraordinary. What they, what is called extraordinary crimes, which would be like a serial. Like I, I mean, those are not clients that I work mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. at all. That those are not just clients that come through that come through our office. I mean, we just recently opened up a homicide unit, which I'm not in. I am part of the adolescent unit, and I. Can I can work with up to someone that has an attempted murder um, charge, mm-hmm. 
Um, but I don't work with clients that that even have that are even charged with homicide. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes, I am only when I primarily what I'm talking about are lower level offenses and not extraordinary crimes, which are which is often like sort of the idea that people have of like people in jail, like these are bad people, they're evil. And like, mm-hmm. that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of and, and a lot of yeah. people that are in jail are not in for what we again, what we would consider extraordinary crimes. Yeah. And I think about like the number of um a black and brown men who are likely in prison because they were stopped because they fit a description and they found like a little bit of weed um in their pocket in places mm-hmm. where um it's not legalized yet and they're processed in the system. But you know, when I went to college, like there was tons of white people like sniffing coke, smoking weed. And the only difference mm-hmm. in the trajectory between their life and that other person's life is that that person, well, removing like when I say trajectory, I mean like having been processed in the system, not, you know, mm-hmm. anything else. But the only difference is that that person, that that black boy, that brown boy was stopped by the cops and they found weed in their pocket. But there's tons of other people who are walking around same age who have mm-hmm. who are smoking weed, who are selling mm-hmm. drugs, who are doing all this stuff. Yeah. And we label them as bad people or criminals. But it's like but we see so many other people who do it recreationally, who are selling it. And the same mm-hmm. people who are doing recreationally are, this, are the people who are buying it from those folks off the street who are getting processed in the system. Yeah. And we think those people are criminals. But what about your friends that are buying it and smoking it? What about them? What do you think about mm-hmm. them? You think they're okay people, but the, the folks who are getting caught with it because sometimes they that's the only source of income that they're going to get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, there are definitely plenty of stats that, are, that say... Um, black and white people do marijuana at the same rates Mm -hmm. except black people are are criminalized for it while it's not the same for their white counterparts Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah um i i we have one one last question to ask you and i think this is this is like really important for people um So like, I don't work in the criminal system, just doesn't work in the criminal legal system. And so I think for us, sometimes um, I see the injustice and it it makes me so upset, but I don't know how I can help because I am one person and like, I can't go in and be like, okay, we're changing the the system. So for the people who are listening, who don't, don't work in, in the system, like how can they become more informed and how can they help? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I think it starts with like educating yourself about the different ideas that you have and Mm -hmm. like, like learning more about it. I mean, we've seen, I've seen quite a few documentaries lately on Netflix that I think somehow highlight, um, that do a good job of highlighting what happens within the criminal legal system and the, the people that are incarcerated. Um, I recently watched College Behind Bars, which was a good documentary. It actually takes place in a maximum, a media maximum correctional facility here in upstate New York and how the people that are incarcerated there are um, 
going to college as well. And, you know, they talk about their lives and, you know, what led them there, but also they talk about like being students. Um, so I think that documentary did a good job. When They See Us, another great documentary, which highlights the story of the um, Central Park Five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really appreciated the book Just Mercy, which I I am a huge, um, I mean, I am in awe of Brian Stevenson. He is a, a criminal defense attorney that works for people that are on death row and I think his story and the people that he highlights in his book and actually it was a movie that came out recently um so I think like educating yourself but also I can start with the little things you know the way that we refer to people that have been justice involved like people are not what they did or what they were accused of doing these are still people so I think humanizing people is so Mm -hmm. important throughout you know, their process of being incarcerated or like once they come out, like it's so important to allow people to be humans. Like this might've been a mistake, you know, this was might've been a mistake. Maybe they didn't do what they were accused of, but like mm-hmm. calling someone a criminal, calling someone, um, you know, like an inmate, like I, yeah. those are not terms, you know, those are terms that we try to stay away from mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, because you want to give people their humanity. Like you want to make sure that people feel at the very least feel like they are still human beings, that they are still capable of living their life without this being something that will forever follow them. Although unfortunately it does follow them. Mm-hmm. Um, so language matters and I think it's so important to use better language when we talk with our peers, with the people that, you know, were their friends, with our mm-hmm. peers, but also when you're like speaking to people that were formerly incarcerated or are currently um incarcerated. Um I also think that like making sure that the people that are running for, especially like for local elections, like know who your people are, like know about candidates become aware of people that are fighting for mass incarceration to um, to call an end to mass incarceration and are trying to put forth bills that will help Mm -hmm. um to help put an end or not put an end but well hopefully put an end to mass incarceration but like become aware of who is doing that within your communities so i think that those are like important first steps and i don't think that they um I don't think that they take much like, you know, becoming a little bit more educated on the topic and, you know, watching what you say and how you speak about people. Um, Again, words carry, words are heavy and they carry so much meaning behind them. And I think just um, watching the, watching your language is so important and, and like, why not? Like, it, it yeah. makes a huge difference in someone difference in someone's life. And then find out about like different things that you can do in your community, whether it is that you can, you know, volunteer your time to work for an organization that is nearby. Or, um, I mean, I think that those are sort of, or like, if you are in positions at companies where. Maybe you don't have to, you know, change your process of like the questions that you ask for a job application, mm. like the bot, you know, there's 
so many organizations have worked to remove the what they call the box from um if you've been convicted of a crime or or whatnot yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so like working you know finding ways like looking at your job application process like if that if you are in a position to do that to make yeah. change at that level like i think it's so important because it allows and opens doors um for people who have been formally um, involved in the criminal legal system. That's a really good one. Yeah, I like yeah. that one. And I and I love that you touch on like just even conversation with peers and, and, and people you interact with. I think the important call out there is like not necessarily talking about the person and what they did, but challenging the systems in which that person lives in. Correct. Who, you know... Mm-hmm who are they in regards to how do they, how are they seen in the world? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, what is their, you know, upbringing and class and all, and a lot of people that, you know, I've had debates with on this, like they do focus on what the person did and they're not focused. They don't think that where they came from has anything to do with what they did. And in fact, that has everything to do with maybe what happened because of the circumstances. And so, I would I would echo that and say, you know, really challenge your beliefs and why you're believing what you're believing and putting, you know, when you're voting, like I say this all the time, don't just vote for things that benefit you. Really think about how this is benefiting mm-hmm. society because I know there's people out there who will vote for someone that gives them a tax break or is in mm-hmm. in in favor of them because it it benefits their family, but they are for mass incarceration or they are very racist or sexist or homophobic and they're just like well that's just one thing you know they did all these other things and that really frustrates me as a as a woman of color because these are peers or even friends of mine or what I call friends that are saying these things and I'm like now I'm questioning who I am and I'm like how can I how can I associate myself with with that um so I think that that's such an important call out in just like looking at at the people that are representing your your cities your towns your country um because there's so many little things that you can do in just voting or where your dollar's going Mm -hmm. as we always like to talk about Mm but um yeah that's so important yeah i would i would um agree with all of that again i would say like really 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 um challenge yourself and think about um your conceptions of people and the way that you see others and um, really think about the way that you talk about people who are in the system, describe people who are in the system, treat people that have been part of the system um, and think about the ways in which that like ways in which you can change that, but also the ways in which you could have ended up in the system. If we're mm-hmm. having a lot of people ending up in the system for smoking weed, for carrying re- weed, for for low-level things that at some point you've done, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, yeah, I stole a lip gloss when I was younger. You could have ended up in Rikers yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So in you, in you... I mean, I think about... Go ahead. The one I think about the fight that I had when I was in high school. <laughs> like, I could have... I, yeah. I mean, so many of my clients come in for with um, cases like that. Yeah. And I'm like, how many times I would like I look at what it says and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that could be me. Yeah. Yeah. That could have been me with yeah. a felony, right. like a felony charge. I mean, 
thankfully a lot of cases that I've seen that have thankfully not been um the case the the charges have either been dropped or like they've gotten like technical violations but still you're still going through the system this is a very invasive process for something that I'm sure we have one way or another committed what they, we would have we have broken the law one yeah. way or another yeah totally yeah i mean uh, to be to be like completely transparent i even feel weird buying marijuana in california where it's legal like sometimes i feel very weird doing that because i'm like Mm -hmm. there's so many people in jail for being caught with something that's legal now and that's making and they're uh, still in jail even in places where it's been legalized where Mm -hmm. someone probably a white man is making a lot of money off of all these people of color buying this weed here but also profiting from the people, the people of color in jail that got caught doing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I completely get that. I mean, luckily you had a lot of Vaseline when you were fighting, so you would have gotten away if you, sl- <laughs> <laughs> you, you slid, slid. slid your way out. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, this is so important. I, man, this is probably one of my favorite episodes. I feel like I learned so much and like, Steph is, is one of our best friends. And I think we talk about a lot of this stuff a lot, but just being able to put it in this uh, this form and this structure has been really helpful for me. So I hope it's it's super helpful for everyone else. Um, is there anything else that you want to touch on or anything else you want to say before we end our awesome conversation? No, I'm just glad that I had the opportunity to sit here with both of you and have this conversation. I mean, of course, I have all my amazing friends who have you know we have conversations about this and um are always very interested in the work that I do but you know just like like you said putting it in this forum um really allowed me to really think about the work that I do and it's like such a good reminder of um why I do this work because sometimes Mm -hmm. in the day-to-day and especially like right now where things are I'm not able to see the people that I work with Mm -hmm. at the moment yeah um and I mean, the clients that I work with, so I don't, mm-hmm. I have very limited interaction with them right now, but, you know, obviously just speaking with them, um, on the phone, but it's just like, it's such a good reminder of like, of the work. And, and, and again, I do feel very, um, privileged to, to be in this space. And, and I, I'm very grateful that I am at an organization and doing the work that I'm doing because it just feels so aligned with with me and my values and who I am and um so thank you for um bringing on this topic to Trish chat I really really appreciate it um it's something that's very dear to me and and um important and I of course, it's so easy for us to sometimes get angry and, and have mm-hmm. like really um, angry conversations, but also like reminding ourselves that some people, some people just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is such a good way to like try to bring a little bit more awareness um, to to the criminal legal system and the people that are that find themselves uh, trapped in the system. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope 
people got something out of this. Oh, they will. At the very least, there's somebody out there who is very interested in the idea of social work, but also wants to work in the criminal legal system. And now they're like, I want to do what Steph does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so at the very least, you've helped somebody with their career journey mm-hmm. of I hope. what they want to do. And, I, and also just like a lot of what Trish Chat is, it's just like reflecting back on our experiences and like a lot of what we end up wanting to do or our passions revolve around like our experiences. So just taking a moment to reflect on where you've been, where you come from and how you can take that and, and make make good of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And get curious because that's what you did. You know, you, you were like mm-hmm. in your role mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm not completely happy. I could be doing more. Like, what is it? And you went after it. Like, you took a risk. You took yep. a risk. And like, mm-hmm. that's another learning in this. Like, it's an, it's very inspiring. Yeah. Even for me, someone who's 30 years old trying to think about, you know, what does the next 10 years for me look like? Like, mm-hmm. those are things that I want to hear uh, from from my closest friends. So thank you for sharing that. Um, stuff is stuff A slash G. Is there anything else? <laughs> <laughs> point of contention is a slash g um no i just want to say thank you so much Steph, for for coming on here and joining us um i really appreciate you sharing about the work that you do um i think you bringing data is super helpful because there's a lot of stuff out there and i think one one critical piece that you mentioned is that people can take data and spin it however they want. They can give you a little chunk of the data a little a little piece and tell whatever story they want so i think just listening to the pieces that you brought out, I think helps um, folks walk away with like a very baseline understanding of like, these are the numbers. And this is, this is like, uh, uh, like baseline reasons as to why those numbers are the way that they are and helping you get a head start in terms of now you want to learn more. Now, you know, exactly where to start and where to go to inform yourself. So I, I really appreciate that because it helps make all of this a lot less daunting for people. Um, and that that's what I like to do with Trish Chat is to give mm-hmm. people a framework, give people a place to start, give people like the baseline understanding. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is our longest episode yet. So Woo! congrats to all oh of us. God. It's going to be You're awesome. To <laughs> no, it's great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have you back for more. Yes. Part two, part three, yes. part four or something else. Yes. Uh, maybe maybe you'll share some more light on your fight in high school and we can all yes. we can all share some some crazy stories from from our high school days. I mean, there's still debate on where that fight actually took oh, place. That's a huge Was debate. it in one train station or the other? Yeah, well, no, stay tuned for more. <laughs> all right, Steph, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Peace. Bye.